welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, I'm your uh, your host, Nate Larkin. Uh, your other host, the real host, is with me from the left coast, Aaron Porter. How you doing, Aaron? I'm doing great. <laughs> he says so convincingly. Did I not pull that off? I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I, I am doing better the last couple of days. I was getting in a mental funk because I hadn't had a day off in 10 weeks and Saturday was supposed to be it. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of work came in and I didn't get it. And man, I just, it, <coughs> I didn't realize emotionally how much I was looking forward to a day of nothing. Yeah. And so, yeah, that super bummed me out. But last night, have, have you ever serenaded deer before? No, uh, my daughter serenaded sheep, but they were completely indifferent. That's when we were in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> but, but because she'd shown me these videos of guys uh, uh, serenading cows and the cows just loving it and coming over and <laughs> listening to accordion music. So she thought maybe 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 sheep would respond in like manner. And much to her disappointment, they did accordion not. Accordion music. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, so last night was a full moon, and I went out to the car for something at about 10. And we have these herds of deer around us, um, like nine deer hanging out. So it was a full moon, and I just saw some silhouettes under a tree and just all these little heads. Yeah. So I thought, "I I wonder. They don't seem to be bothered that I'm out here. So I sang to them, and their little heads were turning my way and just listening. Really? And then one would just walk away in the moonlight. It was it was completely magical. I never would have thought. Now we're going to be looking for these experiences. <laughs> were you singing a cappella to the deer? Yes, I, I did not take my accordion out, and I really feel like most intelligent creatures would be <laughs> at least afraid, if not offended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, was, oh, that's it was really fun. So full moon and deers—they do like a little. Uh, a little art music singing. Well, you're going to be able to serenade some Tennessee deer here shortly. Uh, I think four or five days from now, you'll be landing in Nashville, bringing your 13-year-old daughter, Abby, with you. Yes. You're here, you're here for 10 days. You're going to be here for the big retreat. It's, a weird, it's, going, to be, it's going to be so great to see you not through a screen again. That, you're that actually going to be here. Is always nice. I can okay. hug you and... Uh, Spent some time with that little girl who's growing up so fast in my mind. You know, she's still a three-year-old clomping around in (laughs) rubber boots. (laughs) The only boots she'd wear. Yeah, yeah. I'll be darned. So, yeah, I am glad that she's rather short. She's on the short side, so I can at least pretend she's still, you know, nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. Unlike the giant male creatures in my house that Mm -hmm. are all towering above me except for the... 11 year old who's gonna be there soon you think so you think elijah's got uh height in his genes is he gonna be a big guy yeah his his mom when i met his birth mom uh in ethiopia she was pretty tall and he has always had that length and he has those the ethiopian legs where his legs are just incredibly long Uh uh-huh trying to get him into some cross-country action uh this year He's running miles at his school and really enjoying it. So he Oh, he likes doing it. He Good. likes doing it. So Oh, fantastic. Yeah. 
So that's all coming up, and I can't wait to see the pirate monks, and I can't wait to see people meeting for the first time. Mm -hmm. That's really the thing I'm looking most forward to. Yeah, me as me as well. It's it's so heartwarming to know that so many of our guys from virtual meetings are going to attend and get a chance to hug their Silas for the first time. Uh, we're trying to uh, schedule in enough free time that these guys will be able to to catch up on all of that informal fellowship that you, it's a, more difficult to do uh, over the phone. And I mean, even though these guys do text to each other throughout the day and they're on meetings together, Zoom, they are seeing each other by video and they're making phone calls. There's still nothing like being in physical proximity. Yeah. We're going to be in a beautiful place. We'll be hanging around campfires at night. And uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Have I ever told on the show of that first time I met my Silas that I had never seen in person? Yeah, I or, don't know, but but it's a great story. Go ahead and tell it. He, so I had had a, a Silas just over the phone from North Carolina for probably close to a year. And mm -hmm. then, you know, five of us were up in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, for a weekend. And he walks through the door and it was just that awkward first date like you want yeah. to hug the guy i mean this person knows everything about my life right, yeah and here he is but then later that night he and scott and i were sitting around the campfire just talking yeah. and i would say something and my silas would just kind of throw it back in my face like i don't know about that and so we're out there for about an hour and then he goes in to use the bathroom and uh I tell Scott, like, this is so weird, man, meeting this guy face to face. And I tell him the story and he goes, oh, thank goodness. I, it was just so weird the way he was talking to you because I knew you had never met him before. And I thought, this guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, he's not an asshole. He's just my Silas. Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. Yeah. And you did that blind. You did it by phone. This was pre-Zoom days. It's not like you were. Yeah. Video calls, right? Yep. And weren't FaceTiming him or anything like that? Nope. And and the I didn't know anything about him. That was kind of the purpose was yeah. to try to be more vulnerable by talking yeah. to someone that I couldn't know how to manipulate them through knowing, you know, what denomination they were, if they were a pastor, maybe they were, yeah. you know, a plumber. I don't know anything. And so I just had to share straight. And I never realized how much I and maybe others use that information to Ooh. form our our confession. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was good for me. Wow. And I still love that fella. Well, today we've got some mail to get to before we throw on an interview that you had with Russ Taff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we got, we've had some, uh, some mail, the mailbag's actually been pretty busy since our three privilege, um, episodes. We don't have time to read all the letters, but I pulled out a couple. Uh, here's one that comes, uh, comes from Tim says, still enjoying the podcast. And what an encouragement to hear Mondo on the recent white privilege episode. I probably haven't shared this with you guys, but we adopted an African-American boy from the foster care system in Atlanta. He's now 11 years old, has been with us about nine years. He's such a joy to our family. I was already somewhat sensitive to the issues of my darker skin, th that my darker skin brothers face in this environment. I vividly remember 
20 years ago, watching a policeman pull upside a young man driving an older Cadillac on I-285 in Atlanta. The policeman seemed intent on intimidation as he matched the young man's speed and kept staring at him. It seemed uncalled for. So I did the same to the policeman just to let him know that I was watching him as well. He eventually backed off. But could a black man have done that? Probably not. That's my white privilege. Obviously, with a black son, I'm even more sensitive to the challenges my brothers face. I so want to protect my son from the bigots and racism. We have seen examples on all sides, actually. We're big fans of the This Is Us TV show, which goes into a bit of the complicated dynamics with interracial adoption. I am sure Aaron can give his two cents on this as well. Uh, please have Mondo come back. Give us a full follow-up talk on what we privileged white men should be teaching our black sons. I don't want to make my boy paranoid, but at the same time, I want to equip him properly. I can't join you at the retreat. It sure sounds like a great time. The Colorado retreat ranks as one of my top 10 experiences. Wow. Nate, one of these days I'll hit you up on my trip, one of my trips to Nashville, although I'm usually in and out quickly. Thanks, Tim. What a great letter. What's your, uh, how do you resonate with that letter? How do you respond to it there, Aaron? Yeah, I don't feel like I need to give any sense on that. I think he, he nailed it. It's a strange and interesting journey to raise a black man. And, yeah. uh, being sensitive to that, especially because, you know, it's, I've always felt like he's going to have to know who he is because he'll never fit in seamlessly to black culture because he was raised in white culture. Right. And right. Denzel Washington has a, a lot of little talks he gives on culture that it's not about color. It's about culture. And I, I really, I believe that uh, having lived with uh, two black men in the black culture in LA and it was, it was a different culture and yeah, so he won't have that, but then he'll never be white to white culture because the first thing people will see is that he's not white. So yeah. he is going to have to uh, know who he is. And, and even, you know, we talked about it on that show that there's so many of the emotions uh, stem from American history and the history yeah. of uh, black and white culture collisions and slavery but he doesn't have that. He comes from Africa. So he, he doesn't even have that to go to. Yeah. Yeah. Is the expected place for him to go to. Yeah. So I'm really, I'm excited for all the potential that that brings. But yeah, as a parent, I totally resonate with the not, not wanting to overdo it, but also wanting to be very aware and give good understanding and wisdom for him to take into life. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fascinating. All right. Well, hey, here's another letter. This one comes from John. It says, hi, Nate and Aaron. Thanks for the recent podcast episodes on privilege. I particularly appreciate that your approach was to listen for understanding. The discussion of privilege is quite timely for me, given some recent discussions I've had with a very diverse group of people who all care about social justice. While I appreciate the open dialogue, I have two concerns with the way the word privilege is being used these days. The first concern is that using phrases like white privilege, and straight privilege, and male privilege seem to assume 
a scarcity mindset. It's as if there's only so much human dignity to go around and those without privilege need to take some dignity away from those with privilege, else they will never get any. A tangible example of this is when those with privilege are told that they aren't qualified to participate in a discussion because, quote, you can't possibly understand given your privilege, unquote. In these cases, it seems that the word privilege is being used to oppress and silence a people group and or being used as a verbal weapon or a slur. I believe in abundance, and I reject the notion that things like dignity, love, respect, and humanity are a zero-sum game. My second concern with this is that it seems consistent with a very troubling trend in our culture today, where we learn one data point about a person and then put them in a box and assume that we know everything we need to or care to know about them. Examples. Quote, tell me your position on abortion and I'll fill in the rest of the details. I'll know everything I need to know, unquote. The same with your view on gay marriage, whether you voted for Trump or Hillary in the last election, whether you drive a Prius, whether you live in Texas. One piece of information is used as a bellwether to paint a simple picture of a complex individual. This approach is insensitive and lazy, and I believe it contributes to the divisiveness we suffer from these days. I'd love to see our discussions focus on real inclusion and real tolerance for diverse points of view without the use of highly charged labels or efforts to find where we can assign broad labels to people that feel convenient and expedient. I have a lot to learn about how to have these kinds of conversations myself. Again, thanks for the thought-provoking episodes and thanks again for being willing to hear feedback. If you think I missed the point or I'm off base with my feedback, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. We got we have some smart listeners, man. We really do. Yeah. Wasn't that great? All right, tell what? me your th- tell me your thoughts on that cuz I thought that was uh man, that was great. Yeah, yeah. It was it was hard for me to disagree with anything John says. I mean, I do uh, these are uncomfortable conversations. For me, partly because there's this voice in the back of my head that says, first of all, we shouldn't be having to have them. Mm. Uh, It's part of life in a fallen world that we have to deal with these unpleasant realities. And I am certain that there are distortions in my own thinking that come, first of all, just from my sense of discomfort. I'm in an awkward conversation I don't want to be in. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm worried about how I am being seen and perceived. Mm. Uh, and I do tend to get reactive. I mean, uh, uh, Kristen and I had an experience just yesterday as we were taking a walk downtown. It was Tuesday, and she and I meet on Tuesdays. Usually I go to Mount Pleasant, but yesterday she came here, and we took a walk downtown to McCreary's, which might surprise you. Um, and on the way, I, I saw a couple of uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, a, a guy and a girl, male and female, looked to be in their mid-20s, walking in our direction up the sidewalk. And as we got close, they stepped off the sidewalk to, I thought, to let us pass. Um, but turned out it was to engage us in conversation, and uh, they were there uh, canvassing the neighborhood selling magazine subscriptions. But from an angle of uh, 
this is a way for me to help. Uh, I don't know, man, all of a sudden it starts playing on my white guilt, which pisses me off because I don't think I have white guilt and I don't want, and I feel like I'm being manipulated because of my social status. And uh, if I don't buy a magazine subscription, I'm really, you know, a privileged white man who doesn't care about, uh, you know, black folk. When really, I just don't want magazines, you know. Boy, and and Tony Robbins says it's women that fill in blanks with huge narratives. That's a a lot of stories running through your mind as two people step off a curb and start trying to sell you a magazine. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it got really messy real fast. And Kristen and I wound up trying to untangle that conversation all the way to McCreary's and all the way back. Yeah. Well, I... It is messy, and I agree with the beginning of what he said about just the word privilege. I mean, the reason we did these three episodes was because uh, I I hate that word, and I hate what it means. It frustrates me, and Mm -hmm. so that's why I felt like I needed to engage it on on, uh, our culture's terms right now. Right, Um, yeah. But... I thought his point about scarcity is so great. And I've never heard anyone talk about it like that. That mm-hmm. it is true. When we talk about it in those terms, it does feel like you have you have a bunch and now you have to give some up. Yes. And I fully agree with him that there is an abundance of space. So it's not that I have to give something up that I have so much as I need to make space for that. Uh, that love and uh, kindness and grace that already exists. And especially as Christians, how can we not agree with the statement that there is plenty of love and kindness and grace? And Jesus modeled that so perfectly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, what a, what great insights he had. He really did. Really did. So I've got one here and I'll Mm. read it then, then make you a, reply first to it (laughs) okay all right shoot uh this one came through facebook and it says i was very disappointed in the straight privilege podcast i know you said in the beginning that it wasn't about what the bible says about homosexuality but the podcast ended up sounding like you have no problem with that type of immorality being born white or male is one thing practicing homosexuality is another completely different thing along the same line you could have a pedophile on that and that person could explain how marginalized they feel by society and the church or how about the sex addict complaining about how they feel a lack of privilege all right give me your thoughts oh all right well uh, let me see uh, we will have a sex offender on the show. I, I hope, uh, because, uh, these guys really are the, uh, lepers of modern society. Uh, they even carry a greater stigma. All than, right. Well, let's, let's, let's get, let's start with that. Then you're starting yeah. in the, the second part, Yeah, which is, uh, it, it seems like, uh, our friend is saying when he says in the same line, you could have a pedophile on and that person could explain how marginalized they feel by society and the church. Uh, it, it sounds like he's saying that's a bad thing. 
Yeah. And uh, it was ironic that you and I, a couple of weeks before this, were talking about uh, a, a friend who was going to come on and talk about that. Yeah. Because that is probably the hardest thing I've had to deal with as a pastor when somebody mm -hmm. comes into the church and often they will disclose that they're a sex offender. And so you have to make a lot of decisions right, uh, for the, the community of the church. Mm -hmm. And it is right. messy. And I've had three close friends who were sex offenders, one who was falsely accused and it took him over a decade to get get out from under that, but he lost his life because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it it is really messy. And so because it's messy and something we don't want to think about, that's why these people do feel like they don't have a place to belong yeah. in the body of Christ. So I think you're saying, yeah, I think we should be listening to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but of course, I mean, this really does get uh, complex when uh, it, it, if we have the feeling, if we have the belief that anyone's persistence in uh, any kind of sinful behavior um, disqualifies them from membership in the church, or from a conversation, uh, from 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 a charitable, kind, caring, respectful conversation with other Christians. That somehow, I, gosh, I don't know. It's it's messy. I hear I hear I hear what this brother's saying. I really do. And what we, it seems like we want to be able to footnote all these conversations by saying, and by the way, uh, so that nobody misunderstands, let's be clear. Uh, you know, this is sinful behavior or uh, and depends on what we're talking about. Of course, we tend to pay very close attention to certain classes of uh, of sin. And uh, anyway, I personally, Aaron, I loved the the kindness and dignity, and uh, I mean, you, you were you were a friend to the folks that you interviewed on the Straight Privilege podcast. I think you showed uh, the attitude and heart of Jesus. I think he would have hung with them in the same way, and you didn't try to convict them of anything. You didn't try to do the Holy Spirit's job. Well, and and it's not just being a friend to them there. I mean, one of one of them I just met that day, but one of them has been uh, a friend for a long time. Yeah. And we've had a lot of uh, conversations about church and about Jesus. And so uh, as I read this, this first part, and, and by the way, I'm very, uh, I'm very thankful that Philip wrote this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that he wasn't afraid to put this out there. Um, so none of this is, is negative that he threw it out. And I think he's also voicing something that many Christians think. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important for us to talk a little bit about it. When 
when he wrote the sentence or the the end of a sentence, uh, the podcast ended up sounding like you have no problem with that type of immorality. That's a really important sentence because yeah. I think that captures what what is the first questions Christians have to address. And the first question I have with that is sound like it to whom? Mm-hmm. Right. There's there's like an understood somebody is going to think you have no problem with that immorality. And I think we as Christians grow up feeling like we have a, a little a little religious judge on our shoulder who's listening to everything. And and I have to somehow please that. Uh, <laughs> I'm just picturing Jiminy Cricket as a, in a Pharisee outfit <laughs> on my shoulder. <laughs> um, and I have to check myself because sometimes I will shortcut common love and kindness so that I can please an invisible creature that I've made up in my head. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was the first thing I thought was I've had to become aware of that. Yeah. But the other is, I think Philip's also saying, well, you know, you, it sounds like it to those that are struggling to know how to feel about homosexuality. Is yeah. it, is it immoral? Is there a place for it in the church and that whole conversation? And I'm not going to assume that all of our listeners are at the same place on that question at all. Right. right. Um, so that takes a lot of conversations and those conversations uh, need to be very personalized with individuals, whether they're Christians walking through it or whether you're talking to uh, a person who is gay, they, they have a whole story. And yeah. the answer to those tough questions come within the context of that story. And when we broad brush it with just statements, when we make statements, what we lose is relationship. Yeah. And those individuals are, are not going to respond to the statements. They're going to respond to relationships just like we respond to relationships and all the areas of our life that we're trying to figure out. Right. Yeah. Um, so even this conversation we're having right now, I know would be offensive to, to some of my gay friends who are like, well, this entire conversation is once again, putting us in the same category as pedophiles. Yeah. It's once again, putting us in a position where we're the sinners and you're trying to fix us. We're a project for you. Yeah. And, and they lose their dignity in that they lose their personhood. And so yeah. however these conversations go down, we know we are missing it if we are robbing people of dignity and love. Yes. That there has to be a place for grace and dignity and love and truth that neither one of those have to be sacrificed. And boy, I've, I've had friends ask hard questions. I remember when one of my friends came to me and said, okay, Aaron, he wasn't, he wasn't a friend yet. He was still testing me. It was a, it was a long courtship with this individual. And he said, well, Aaron, if a gay person came to your church, would you try to get them to stop being gay? Mm -hmm. What an awkward question for a gay person to ask a pastor. Like I, I immediately felt my, my face get hot. Yeah. And so first we talked a little bit about why that was important to him. I want to know where that was coming from. And it came from uh, being hurt and having friends who are hurt by the church's response. And ultimately my answer was, look, man, if somebody's coming to the church where I work because, because of their faith, 
and they're trying to grapple with their faith. And part of their faith is that they believe this is a sin then I am going to walk down that journey of their faith with them. And that probably is going to look bad to you because you don't have that same faith. Right, but if, yeah. if you meet a Christian who's gay, are you going to try to talk them out of going to my church? Mm-hmm. To which he smiled and said, yeah, probably. And I said, great. Then we're both doing the exact same thing and serving our functions within the communities we live. <laughs> but I guess we have more in common than we think. But those yeah. are the those are the hard questions to walk through. And I didn't have to lie to him or, you know, I, the answer was, yeah, if this person is is feeling I think this is a sin and I need to uh, be celibate and not yeah. engage in this, then I'm going to walk with them through that. Yeah. Yeah. And after that conversation, we were still we were still friends. You know, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, trying to pacify or uh, the the little Pharisee on your shoulder. I'm going to do morning devotions tomorrow for the annual meeting of the National Council uh, or Conference of Men's Ministries. They're meeting in Nashville. And uh, the text that I can't escape, so the one I'm going to speak from tomorrow morning, is Luke 12, 1, which is, beware, Jesus saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hmm. There is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Um, And I remember during my years of active addiction, just despising my own hypocrisy and uh, trying so many strategies to, to escape my own hypocrisy. But the only door I knew to go through was to stop sinning. And Hmm. somehow I could never make it through that door. Well, it turns out there is another door, <laughs> and the door is to stop lying, to stop hiding, to walk in the light. Uh, uh, but that means uh, that we're going to be in company with other people who are also in process. Um, it's bringing my brokenness together with your brokenness, and in order to do that, it has to be a non-judgmental environment. Uh, and one in which neither one of us is trying to establish or defend our own righteousness. We're walking in humility and trusting entirely on a righteousness, not our own. Mm -hmm. Uh, And only when that atmosphere exists, is it possible for us to do what the Bible advises us to do, to get the healing we need to escape from these entangling sins, and that is to be able to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Mm. Yeah. And. Honest conversations. And we are warned, Jesus warned us against um, uh, uh, creating an atmosphere where our first concern is that people aren't sinning. We can't show our own sin. uh, And if they show anything that crosses the bounds of our own understanding of morality, that our first responsibility is to somehow defend righteousness. Mm -hmm instead of defending people. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And let's, let's face one other piece of hard truth. Mm -hmm. Um, We generally feel very different, differently in the church about homosexuality than most other issues. Right. Yeah. Uh, And I didn't realize how much I did that. Uh, I, I once did a funeral for a gay couple 
which I that's a whole story. Yeah. Um, but afterwards, I was sitting at the the lunch they were having, and I was sitting down with the husband of uh, of a friend of mine, and I had never met him before. Yeah. And it was just us sitting at the table, and I was thinking, like, okay, the most obvious question is, so how did you guys meet? And like, tell me your story. Yeah. And I felt uncomfortable with that question because I thought if I ask that question, then I'm going to make it sound like I think it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I was thinking. Uh, please forgive me, everybody who's listening to this and thinks I'm an asshole for thinking that. Uh, so I didn't ask the question at first. And then it occurred to me, I, I have a relative who's not a Christian who was living with her boyfriend at the time. Yeah. And... I had stayed there with Jenny at their house and we had had dinner and I listened to their story about how they got together. Now they were living outside of the biblical mm -hmm. setting for a sexual relationship. Yeah. And yet it did not even occur to me the same way it occurred to me with this person I was eating with. And so I had to recognize number one, I was far more concerned in strange ways about this issue than any other things that I would say were biblical issues. Yeah. Uh, but then it also brings it into, uh, we have to bring in first Corinthians five with Philip's note. It's so important because he's, he's talking about the, the person in the church and how the church is supposed to deal with them. And he says two important statements, which is I told you not to hang out with the sexually immoral, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral, uh, in or the idolaters or the swindlers in the world, you'd have to leave the world. So he's saying, of course, you're going to be associating with all those kinds of people. And at the end of the chapter, he says, what do I have to do with judging those outside of the church? Mm -hmm. So Paul sets up a big difference that the way we respond and walk with people who are not in the church is different than how we respond to those in the church. So if somebody is not claiming Jesus is their Lord, mm -hmm. then the the door is wide open for me to enter into that relationship without this, those judgments. Mm -hmm. It's when people are in the church that it then gets really sticky and messy with now, how do I walk in these relationships with them? Yeah. And frankly, those outside of the church can't judge how we walk through that mess inside the church. They, by their standards, it's not going to make any sense. Yeah. But those are two different conversations. That's a good point. That's a good point. I think we also need to acknowledge that for a lot of people, this is very much an emotionally uh, charged issue, especially if they've ever been uh, the target of predatory or abusive behavior, uh, opposite sex or same sex. Man, uh, a lot of times it seems like we're talking theology and we're not. We're really talking trauma. Hmm. Well, uh, we could go on talking, uh, having this uncomfortable conversation for a very long time. But <laughs> I do want, I, I do want to get to our guest. This uh, is a conversation that my Silas, David Hampton, and I uh, had with Russ Taff, the award-winning uh, gospel artist that those of us who are old enough remember when he was dominating the charts. Hey, I remember old people listening to him when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so uh, there's a film coming out uh, the 30th of September. It's a one night showing in theaters all around the country uh, called I Still Believe. It's the Russ Taft story. And Russ sat down with David and me on the Positive Sobriety podcast uh, to tell us some of his story. And it was just such a, a wonderful conversation that I felt it was well worth playing for our Pirate Monk listeners. Well, we'll take a quick break and we will get to that here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome, uh, Russ Taft, to this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. What a privilege it is uh, to have you here. Well, thank you, Nate. It's good to be here. Uh, the, uh, the company that's doing promotion for the upcoming film sent us screeners. Uh, yeah, the film I Still Believe, yes. and, uh, out September 30th. And, uh, man, October 30th. Octo- October 30th. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Is that right? It's October 30th. October 30th. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Like, <laughs> well, we'll get them. No, we'll get them there. We'll get them there in line early. There you go. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with... Bring your tent. <laughs> what's wrong with bumping the, the release date a yeah. little bit? Make sure and buy that ticket early. <laughs> yes, it's right. going to sell out in some yeah. places. But I, I got to see that last night. Oh, uh, so I watched it twice. Really? I watched it twice. And I do have to tell you, Russ, that... Um, the first time I watched it, about 20 minutes in, I started to experience a little PTSD. <laughs> uh, because although you and I, you know, we live different lives, I, we grew up in similar worlds. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just so beautiful for me uh, to watch how um, you walk through your story. So uh, one of the ways in which you and I are similar is that our dads were Pentecostal preachers. Right. And uh, we grew up uh, in country churches, yep. not fancy churches, right? Yep. And uh, and we heard a hard gospel growing up. Oh, my. A lot of guilt. Yeah. A lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, if you don't mind, uh, by the way, I, I don't know. I would imagine that many of our listeners know the name Russ Taft. You saw him on the Grammy shows. He's won how many? Six Grammys? Six Grammys. Six yeah. Grammys. Yeah. Uh, male Vocalist of the Year, several years. Yeah. Um, and if I may say, a signature sound voice to an era of Christian music. Mm. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, I wonder if you could, if we could just uh, walk back a little bit. And give our listeners a little context. Tell us a little bit about your growing up and what happened before you became the Rust Half. How did that happen? <laughs> well, do we have all day? <laughs> uh, recovery takes a long time sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I, I grew up, um, dad was a Pentecostal preacher in a small little church, and um, mom worked in the fields uh, out there in the San Joaquin Valley where uh, the first part of my childhood was. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was um, there was always work, you know, for people, you know, trimming peach trees and thinning them. And, you know, by the time I was 15, I always could find work, you know, mm-hmm. through the summer when I was at school. But Daddy was a, he preached a hard gospel. Yeah. He yeah. preached a very hard gospel that he couldn't live up to. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, you know, I'll, I'll just, uh, we were kind of off in the corner waiting for Jesus to come back. Yeah. And we weren't involved really in much. Uh, everything outside the church was partaking of the world. Yes. And so um, we were just kind of over in a corner um, in church, see, four nights a week and Sunday morning. Um, but he was, he, he he was a, a, a an alcoholic before he became a, a preacher. When yeah. he became a preacher, he stopped, and um, and then he relapsed uh, when I was seven years old. Um, and he wasn't at church. Mom sent me home to check on him. And I, when I walked in the the door uh, in the back bedroom, I heard a sound I'd never heard coming out of my dad. Mm. You know, and slurring and. And I didn't know what it was. I thought he was real sick because yeah. uh, I'd never been around him like that. But um, so I went and got mom and it started a uh, whole series until I left home and continued after I left home of being um, dad being straight and preaching the gospel. Uh, and then he couldn't live up to the gospel and he felt guilty and he'd mm-hmm. go get drunk. Yeah. Mm. And so that started. Um, and my, my mother, uh, my mother gave me, uh, a, a great musical sense and a great musical, but she lived in chaos, yeah. just chaos. And so, uh, I remember when one of the worst beatings I ever got in my life is when I told my little friend that mom and dad had had an argument mm-hmm. because they're supposed to be perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And. Mom beat me to a point that I was balled up in a in the corner. Her just kicking me, screaming, "You don't tell anybody what goes on in this family." Yeah, wow. Uh, and yet, by the time I was eleven and twelve, um, it's called covert incest. It's not mm-hmm. physical incest, mm-hmm. but it is mental incest, where you become a partner in a sense. And she couldn't talk outside the family either. When Dad right. would, would uh, and so she chose me yeah. at eleven years old to. I'd, she'd come in my bedroom and I, she'd make me sit up and she would just start dumping on me. Yeah. yeah. We're about to lose the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do. We're out of money. And, uh, and and talk to me about things you don't talk to a, a little boy about. Yeah. Um, you know, even involving their sex life. Yeah. Uh, which I had no idea who, who or what mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm. But she was trapped. He was trapped. All of us were trapped. And and so you grew up with this real hard gospel that you're not worthy. You're Mm -hmm. not worthy. You got to try harder. You got to try harder than to a home of dad doing exactly what he was preaching against so hard. Yeah. And so you're just back and forth and back and forth. And uh, I remember when I hit 13, 14 and I was playing guitar and I was singing 
But dad was a narcissist. He had to, he had to have all the attention on himself. Right. Mm. To the point, I mean, they both worked, and they worked hard. But uh, we never had birthdays because mom was too tired. Sure. Uh, and she would say, I love you, I love you some, but my four brothers and me, but I just don't have time. Yeah. And so, but every year on my dad's birthday, the church would throw him a big, um, a, a big birthday party. Right. You know? Wow. Uh, but um, they, they, they were raising me the way they were raised, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, uh, but he, uh, uh, got jealous of me when I would do good with my guitar. I'd play sure, and sing, sure. and if I got too much attention, he would emotionally punish me for a couple of days and not look at me. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. And How did it feel, Russ, for you to see your dad getting all this uh, praise and celebration and uh, affirmation, knowing that your life was very different, that you were like your mom's emotional surrogate, and that right. your "don't talk, don't trust, don't feel" rules right. in an alcoholic home. Mm-hmm. We're playing out. How, I mean, and then your dad gets a big cake. Yeah, you know, I mean, like yeah. what? What's that do to you? Well, it's saying that everything revolves around him. Everything, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. his birthday, uh, his accolades, um, and then I would do good on my guitar singing, and then I would have to stay away from him for a couple of days because he didn't like it. Mm-hmm. You know, for anybody mm-hmm. to show him up, it's like my. Um, my four brothers and I, we would line up. We lived about a half a block from the church and race home. And Dad was tall, long legs, and, of course, he always won. Mm. But then there was one night, one of my older brothers beat him, mm-hmm. mm. and we never raced again. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just... But, you know, with all of this going on, daily, 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 is not worth a bullet to shoot you with, not worth the salt that goes on your bread. Oh, yeah. And you'll never make you'll never be anybody. I mean, you're 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 going nowhere, and your life you be more like your cousin because he was a great athlete and he was smart. And you know, mm. I, I'm short. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> uh, you know, I I tried sports, but that just wasn't my thing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I love playing baseball and stuff, but not good enough to be on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so there was just this constant, you know, you're not worth anything. Um, and dad running everything and everything revolves around him. Um, but unfortunately, when they say this to you constantly, uh, and when I left home at 17 and I couldn't stay in this anymore, my body was betraying me. I was getting big sores and hand swelling, and uh, the oh, doctor really? thought I had a venereal disease my senior year of high school. But hmm. uh, I was a virgin. But he said, son, what's ever going on in your life, you need to change it because your body is just betraying you. And uh, so I left home at 17, and, you know, I, I went to mom and dad and i said uh i can't play this game anymore mm-hmm. you know it mm-hmm. i can't i can't continue because he would go get drunk and disappear and drink for like three days and not eat and just lay out under somewhere where you know like an orchard or something mm-hmm. um and i would have to go find him and bring him home that was my gig was to go find him and bring him home And so he was losing one of his elements to keep his life going the way he wanted it to go. Right. 
But he hated himself too. Yeah. For you know, he he uh, he wasn't able to do it, and he was a man's man in his own mind, and he preached this gospel that he couldn't even live up to, mm-hmm. and all it did was made you feel guilty mm-hmm. and make you ashamed, and because you're not perfect. Right. But in the meantime, uh, if I understand the story right, in high school you were uh, kind of Saint Russ. Uh, you were a, a public Christian? Oh, yeah. Uh, the last year of high school, in the middle of all of this going on, I had to put a little band together, and uh, we started playing, and we were good enough to do other churches uh-huh. and stuff. And uh, But, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I thought God would just had a big move in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where I was then, uh-huh. and but, uh, you know, I found out it was going on all over the country and they were calling it the Jesus movement. And it's yeah. the greatest revival I've ever seen where people would mm-hmm. would turn to their higher power and get, get involved. And, and mm-hmm. I had people, you know, coming up to me in the school and asking me, how do I find Jesus? So. I'm two different people. I'm mm-hmm. this Christian, you know, uh, the way I'm supposed to be. And then there's this terrified, scared. Um, and I felt like both of them were living in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had to, they would come together some, but most of the time they were all, and I would move into whichever role I was mm-hmm. supposed to be in. Mm-hmm. And then I sat up, uh, you know, it's like dad couldn't do it, but by golly, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hold it up and I'll, I'll preach a gospel. We can all live, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll preach his gospel and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it doesn't last very long. <laughs> but, uh, but that year, I mean, there was just this massive move of God. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I'd love to see it again before I die. Mm. just that real revival kind of a thing going mm-hmm. on. But yes, there was the St. Russ. Yeah. And uh, and then there was this, it, it was almost like, guys, and you'll know what I'm talking about, uh, even before I was in addiction, but I hated myself. Mm-hmm. Right. I hated myself greatly because yeah. I couldn't do it either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I made this image of myself that everybody loved, mm-hmm. and I would hold this image up in front of me. Mm-hmm. And that image would get all kind of praise, and mm-hmm. especially when you know we started playing and it started getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And I held this image up, and that image got all the love. Yeah, you know, it got all the the uh, accolades. Yeah, and I'm standing behind this image like an Auschwitz survivor. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know, no, I get nothing, mm-hmm. but that image gets it. And right. you know, I'm not that image. I'm I'm both of the I'm sick individual yeah. uh, and we're carrying a great shame complex, right? Right. But because of their God and, and the way they felt about Him, and they passed it on to us that we're scum, and we're you know if we get into heaven, it's going to be you know by the skin of your teeth is what they call, mm-hmm. and, yeah. And so you never felt secure, right. you never felt safe, and. Uh, so uh, bring me back to places, you know, yeah, that you well, want me to go. Uh, well, and also uh, you really didn't have any choice but to either create that persona or lie. Yeah. And, you know, or or be completely exposed and alienated. Right. Right. Because, I mean, right. there's only a persona or alienation because nobody can really be authentic. No. In right. that right. kind of a no. system. Right. In a shame based culture, if right. I let you see who I really am. I'll be rejected. I'm done. I'm absolutely. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Because they were so judgmental and I'd seen people get thrown out of churches and, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was 12, I think, uh, in Arkansas, I mean, in California, uh, you know, the church voted daddy out because you can't have a drunk pastor, you know. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, but when they had their meeting to vote him out, Mama wanted me to go. Um, I was like twelve to to so I could tell her what they said. Yeah, I mean you know she was playing right into the sickness too. Yeah, yeah. And so I went down there, and man, they said horrible things about my dad. Yeah, and I, and I'm crying, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, because that's my dad. It, right. Even with all the sickness and stuff, he's still my dad. Yeah. Right. And so I went home and, you know, told her and and it just started this whole sick dance between she and I. That, yeah. uh, and then I felt responsible for my younger brother when dad would come home drunk or they'd go get him out of the drunk tank uh, at the police station. Uh, he would come in and he, he he was like cussed like a sailor. Mm. Calling mom names I'd never heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, and ugly, mm-hmm. ugly things. Mm-hmm. It was like she, he knew that this she was going to come at him with his sin. Mm-hmm. So he would just reject her, you know, and put her off balance by saying, you're this, you're this, you're this, mm-hmm. and you're a whore. And, you know, mm-hmm. then you're hearing that and go, man, just two weeks ago. <laughs> You know, he was telling the world how much he loved mom and how good and saying, you know, want to know what I believe. Look at my family. You know, look look at my kids. This is what I believe. And so you felt like a fraud. And I remember when uh, sex started kind of coming into my life and my three older brothers. um, Well, yeah, I was intrigued uh, at that moment. But I found my older brother's Playboy's magazines, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'd never seen anything like that either. Sure, and, and sure. I was like, all the suppression because sex was wrong, and, mm-hmm. and but yet I would hear them making love, mm-hmm. and it was poo-poo on sex. But my bedroom's next to theirs, and and uh, it was just it was just a, a confusion everywhere, no solid ground. And I was in New York with my wife. I was 26 years old. I was with the Imperials. And even at that, I mean, you know, winning Grammys and and not feeling worthy, mm-hmm. you know, if they're going to if they find out what this Auschwitz survivor is, mm-hmm. who they're voting for, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to have a career. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got I got to New York and I never drank because of daddy. And here in uh, Nashville, there there's social drinking, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, I you know, w- one of my pastors that, you know, she'll she'll have a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, at dinner with my wife, but mm-hmm. I don't, you mm-hmm. know, it was that kind of thing. Yeah. But, uh, I was in New York. I just saying, I'm not judgmental. Anybody, you know, if they're not listening to this and you're not an alcoholic, uh, just understand where <laughs> I, I was coming from, but it was hot. We, they were on the fifth floor of, um, this high, uh, apartment building in downtown in the village. Okay. And back then there wasn't bottled water, you know, or t- yeah. you just drink whatever. But I drink Cokes a whole lot. And I mm-hmm. looked in the fridge and there were three Heinekens, no Coke. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I'll just try that. Everybody else does, mm-hmm. you know, around me. Uh, uh, and so I had my first Heineken. And I started feeling something. Mm-hmm. And I immediately had another one mm-hmm. and I was feeling better. Those voices got quieter. Mm-hmm. And by the time I had that third one, everything was okay. Mm-hmm. Those voices were quiet. Um, I was at peace, I thought. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. I thought, and I, next to the next day, I cried and thanked God. I yeah. can live this way. I can live without these voices in my head accusing me constantly. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I, I wanted to do it more. Yeah. And just to quiet those voices. And it was a long, hard road ahead of me to get rid of those voices without alcohol. Right. But they stay away, you know, yeah. when you do the work. But but uh, and it started my career. And immediately, immediately I started hiding and lying. Right. I mean, from the get go. Yeah. And I but would, you had just found your warm hug from God, oh God. the one you'd been waiting yes. for your whole life. I remember my first drink at 13 and every alcoholic I've ever met can tell you their first drink and what they experienced and press and pause in their psyche to say, that's going to be a part of my life. Yeah. I don't understand praying for peace when they sell it for nine ninety nine. Yeah. Del <laughs> and you can get it without waiting. It's instant, it's, it's, you know, exactly. four drinks, you're there. That's it. You know, yeah. and, and oh, it was incredible. I, I thank God I, I can live this way. But we all know uh, because we've been through it after a certain amount of time, it turns on you. Right. Mm-hmm. And it turns on you with a vengeance. And, uh, and then, but then it had me and I felt so guilty because I was turning into my dad and I swore I would never be that man. Mm. And now here I am hiding and lying and fighting with Tori just to get away from her towards my wife, mm-hmm. you know, where she wouldn't come out on the road. So I could go out there and after a concert, I'd have it waiting for me and I'd do my best not to drink mm-hmm. before a concert. Um, but you know, I'd always be back at the hotel waiting for me, and I just couldn't wait to get back to shut my head off mm-hmm. because I, I, I turned into two different people. Mm-hmm. I was that person that was hated by myself and by a God that uh, didn't like me very much mm-hmm. to this singer that was getting all kind of praise. I mean, you go to work in the morning and 3,000 people are clapping for you. Right. How many people get that? Right. You know, <laughs> you right. go to work and, and they clap, but you never felt worthy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're this person over here. But it's like I, both of these tried to coexist in my mind and in my body. Mm-hmm. And the only way I could do that was to drink. Mm-hmm. And then they both felt at peace. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wasn't that concerned at the time about, God, right. you know, because I'm numb mm-hmm. and, uh, and, but my concept was God was, God was all screwed up, mm-hmm. all screwed up. And I, I remember, um, uh, my, my first AA sponsor, you know, told me he saw the struggle that was going on when I tried to get sober. Uh, well, I'll go back and get into my sober thing in a minute, but he told me, he said, if your God is judgmental and hard and you can't please him. Mm-hmm. fire him and find one that loves you. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I felt sacri- sacrilegious to me. Yeah. Jesus, God is God, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. and, and those are fighting words, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. even though yeah. I can't live for him, like I need to, I'll fight for him though, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. but it took a while to see this God I'm serving is, is, is eating my lunch every day. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the drill, I mean, you know, there were times I would drink before a concert and you try to hold your breath, uh, as long as you can, when you get in an elevator Mm -hmm. with fans Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you stay away from, um, pastors that are around because Mm -hmm. you don't want them to smell you. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so it, it just took off this dance for 10 years of, 
guilt and shame and all this praise coming from people and and um it, you know it's it's going to the image and so i i, I was just starved I, yeah. I was just starved and and then it got mean it got real mean yeah tell us about your uh your attempts to stop focusing on stopping what i am not going to do what we sometimes call negative sobriety my focus is on what i'm not going to do mm-hmm. um the uh, did you white knuckle uh oh, abstinence yeah. absolutely i tried and bet i couldn't make it but maybe two days or three mm-hmm. days yeah. i tried and i, I stopped ten thousand times yeah mm-hmm. And and I would say this is my last one. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I, I'm going to get right with God, and uh, you know I'm I've got this beautiful wife, and and uh, and so I'm just going to switch gears, and I'm going to totally live over here with this guy. Yeah. And it would last a couple of days. Yeah. And the shame and the guilt, and I'm not living up for this God that I'm serving. Yeah. You know I'm not. Uh, I, I I probably won't make it in because I'm drinking all the time and mm-hmm. and uh, uh I'm lying all the time to to protect this alcoholic this 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 person in me that was craving this stuff so bad yeah. that uh and he would turn on me I mean just uh-huh. a couple of days and and uh, you know my knuckles started bleeding yeah. I won't I won't I won't I won't okay let's do it let's do it let's do it and then that went on for 10 years yeah. uh-huh. just uh you know, showing this side to the people. And when it was time to go on stage, I would step out of this person, step into this person. Yeah. Uh-huh. And for two hours, I was this person. Uh-huh. But as soon as I walked off the stage, I became this person uh-huh. to get back to the hotel. Uh-huh. And it was it was insane. Uh-huh. I mean, How, you had a pretty profound experience, though, it sounds like from if I remember the the screening um, where you had uh, an experience in New Mexico where this <laughs> finally got integrated, uh, yeah. your trauma Sorry. and the people you were, the, mm. the various parts of you that you thought were different entities, kind of, it sounds like, got integrated into one blissfully painful, mm. terribly awesome well, <laughs> yeah. experience, which is what it always is. But well, where you realize those people, those entities uh, can live under one roof. And this can all be true, it, mm-hmm. but that can't all survive. No, no. So but can you talk about that? Is absolutely. That t- absolutely. We were seeing a therapist and I was, you know, I would, I would, went into AA in 1988. I joined the Imperials in 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went into AA and I, I couldn't I couldn't stop. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I went to treatment and I came out and I, I was doing pretty well. But the voices were still there. Mm-hmm. You know, what can they do in 28 days to change your mind about right. who you are? Right. Um, and but I had nine years sobriety and my dad died. And mm-hmm. immediately that hurt and pain resurfaced. Mm-hmm. All this rage I had at him mm-hmm. and all this love I had for him. And I was standing at his graveside saying, you son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. I love you so much, Dad. Mm-hmm. You know, you son of a bitch. How could you do this to the right. family? But mm-hmm. I love you, Dad. Mm-hmm. And, and you're just in chaos there because 
there's these two sides again that are battling for mm-hmm. this space. And mm-hmm. um, so I had uh, nine years and I got sober going to treatment. Uh, and then I had uh, eight years and my, or seven years, and my little brother died in that protective thing mm-hmm. I had for him. Mm-hmm. And I failed him because I got out and he didn't get out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I knew yeah. he, he, you know, he was going into chaos mm-hmm. and I couldn't save him. I couldn't yeah. put him under the bed. And I felt so much guilt, so much guilt that I let him down mm-hmm. because that was what my mind was telling me, you know, mm-hmm. and you right. don't have anything to battle it with. Right. You know, because you're, you're, you're dry. Mm-hmm but you're not sober in mm-hmm. your head. Mm-hmm. You know, you still have these ridiculous thoughts. And, and, and then mama died a few years later. And again, I hate her. I love her. I hate her. I love her. Mm-hmm. Um, and wound up relapsing for the last time. Um, but my therapist told Dory and I were going to a therapist and, um, through a lot of this, you know, trying to get sober. And then, uh, and she, she, I, I, we were right to the last thread of a divorce happening, mm-hmm. and somehow, um, the uh, the uh, therapist talked her out of it because uh, she said he will never get sober until he deals with the trauma of his childhood. Yeah, she said that's the root of this whole thing, mm-hmm. and and that's why. You know, I, 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 every time I would get, that would get threatened or whatever, I would turn away from it. I, I was trying to act like it didn't happen, really. Sure. Just take all those years, shove them aside. And this is who I'm going to be, and this is who I am. And that thing just kept reaching up and biting me in the butt, keeping mm-hmm. up, bite me in the butt. And so I trusted her, but I didn't know what else to do mm-hmm. because, you know, here I go, my third treatment center. Mm-hmm. And she said, this one's different. It's, mm-hmm. it's different. You, uh, it's a 35-day program, or 33-day program, I think, and uh, they deal with trauma. Mm. That's what they do. Yeah. And she said, <clears throat> you can't see it yet, but that's what you need more than anything is for that conflict to be addressed. Right. Uh, and so I, I trusted her, and I went to this place called New Life uh, Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I got there, and it was it was an intense therapy. It was uh, uh, about six therapists for I think sixteen people, so it was small and it yeah. was intense. And we would do group stuff, and then we would do um, a lot of solo work also. Mm-hmm. But the um, they had me when I got there. They said you need to draw a picture of your higher power because you're going to need him. Hmm. And so my higher power was Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, he and I had worked that out, you know, mm-hmm. a friend of mine told me, just read the red. If you want to know who Jesus is, just read the red, mm-hmm. you know, in the new Testament, mm-hmm. that's who he is. Yeah. And I saw uh, my higher power that loved me and cared for me. And it wasn't, those people were lying about him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I can live with this Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got there and I drew a picture of my higher power, which was Jesus and uh, and I went on for th- three weeks, just therapy, going back to my childhood, going, you know, and they're getting me ready, getting me ready. Well, and after the second week, uh, they said, Russ, bring your higher power to session today because you're going to need him. Mm. And, um, 
So I brought my little higher power, and there was one therapist and me. And he began to work with me. And, and he said, let's go back to the first memories. Let's mm-hmm. go back to the first memories. And my first memory was I was uh, almost two, maybe my younger brother, 16 months younger than me. Well, no, he he, he because he was a baby. So I was like, what, one and a half going on two, whatever. Mm-hmm. And my I took his bottle out of his mouth and I put my mouth in it. And I felt this hand slapping me in the back of the head and say, that's your brother's, not yours. And I'm laying in for what happened? Wow. <laughs> but when you take the lid off, and you guys know that, more mm-hmm. memories come and more right. memories come because you shoved them down so long you mm-hmm. hope just to forget it. Mm-hmm. But it's like a, a, a you know a, an air and a, and a, uh, a, 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 what do you call those, uh, the water mattresses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That you push it down here and it comes up over there yeah. and you push it down over there and it comes up over there. Yeah. And I just chased it and chased it. And they said, let's go to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Let's go to when it all started. Mm-hmm. And they took me, different therapists, took me from place to place to place. And your dad didn't get sober, but it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. your mother never should have turned you into a spouse at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they began to take each point. Every day there would be like two or three memories and they would work with me on it. It's mm-hmm. not your fault. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. And because uh, so by the time I was 15, I was responsible for everybody. Right. You know, dad couldn't function. Mom couldn't function because of dad. And, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, but it started to work. And I cried. I cried for three weeks mm-hmm. through this intense therapy and um, going back to these memories, um, and then you know going through when I drank, what what caused me to drink, and mm-hmm. uh, let's work on those things. What you know that thing inside you, those two people, we yeah. got to get rid of one of them. Yeah, if the other one's going to survive, mm-hmm. and so they begin to work on that guy that was using alcohol. You know, mm-hmm. and was addicted to alcohol or, or whatever, even though it had a couple of years of sobriety, it, mm-hmm. it was still affected, mm-hmm. still affected. But they went after those voices in my head. Yeah. Each one, each accusation, uh, each each time you're not worth a bullet to shoot you with. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not mm-hmm. worth the salt that goes on your bread. And they went from memories to memories. And it was a 33 day program. And I wound up staying uh, 63, 64, I think days Wow! just because it was working, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and by the time I left there, I could think about my parents and I didn't hate them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw them as victims also. Mm. And I could detach myself from them and say, you know, the life they grew up in, my Lord, yeah. they never talked about it. Yeah. But the way they were raising me was, you know, it was just exactly way they were raised and mm-hmm. they they were tormented mm-hmm. and they carried so much shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I left there after 63 days, uh, that, uh, the voices were gone, mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. And then they taught me how to, to do it to myself. How, you know, when those memories come back, they gave me tools to fight them with. Mm-hmm. And I would go to AA meetings and talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, talk about it. Man, today, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about just chucking it all, 
because it's hard work. Mm -hmm. It's the hardest work I've ever done. Yeah. You know, the voice was a gift from God and I just used it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm going to have to really work my ass off if I'm going to get a hold of this. Absolutely. And it required everything, Mm -hmm. you know, not just part, much part. Mm -hmm. It's like if you walk in these doors, you're giving everything away Mm -hmm. and you're going to start learning how to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was a hard process, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because you've learned so many bad habits mm-hmm. over the years, bad habits. And first now, you know, you've gone through this therapy and you don't you're not that angry teenager anymore or mm-hmm. that hurt child. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you go back home and there is this it's like a bomb went off mm-hmm. and everything is just blown away. And. And my wife doesn't know she wants to stay with me, mm-hmm. you know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, I just had, um, I have two daughters, but the oldest one saw me drunk one time, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I would always run away, mm-hmm. run away. Mm-hmm. Um, or I would drink and then get in bed before everybody goes to bed and pass out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had this little routine that the addict could stay in charge. Mm-hmm. But when I came to the very first time to AA, they said, are you willing to go to any length mm-hmm. right. to get well? Yeah. And that was a hard decision. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a very hard decision because this is going to take a lot of work. Yeah. But the prize is I get my life back. Mm-hmm. You know, the prize, it, it's like. For me, it was like getting a brand new car, Mm -hmm. a guy that can function on this planet and be at peace with himself. Mm -hmm. I wanted that so bad, Mm -hmm. you know, that that uh, I said yes. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I did, I jumped around on the steps, steps. You know, I started out knowing I needed God's help and that I had to depend on him. But I began to write uh, my fourth step pretty early on because all of those voices in my head, I need to deal with those things. Uh Uh So I dealt with a lot of that just in therapy and AA until I got to Santa Fe. But Santa Fe was just, they got way down in there, you know, and it was worth every penny it cost me Uh to to get that guy back out, Uh you know, and to go back home. And now I have tools to fight with. Mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, when those voices come in my head, you know, I know how to quiet them. Mm-hmm. I did, mm-hmm. you know, and me responding to my boy, my body resp- responds to my voice better than anybody else saying anything to me. Mm-hmm. And affirmations on the mirror, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm a good guy mm-hmm. uh, to change those thought patterns. Mm-hmm. Because they only had 63 days, but I had my whole lifetime ahead of me. Right. Either I'm going to work this or I'm yeah. going to die, you yeah. know, and I'll, I'll be like my dad. I'll drink myself to death. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it became work. Yeah. It became work. But, you know, after two weeks of sobriety, each time, it was like the stop signs were redder. Mm-hmm. When I got it out of my body, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, and the sky was so blue. I didn't realize how blue the sky was. <laughs> and it was like blinders coming off of my eyes yeah. and say, oh, my Lord, this is life. This is this is living on this planet. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. For years, I had just covered it all up, you know, mm-hmm. but it was a lot of work. 
getting my wife back, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, getting her to trust me again. Sure. And uh, making amends to her as best I could every couple of years because I understood more. And, uh, and I told her, I said, why did you stay with me? I didn't want to stay with me. I was trying to get away from me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but she had been in Al-Anon four years before I got sober. Mm-hmm. She had a brother that was in Al-Anon and, and talked her into going, uh, three years before I was sober the first time. And uh, so she was able to detach and if I didn't get a hold of this, she was leaving. This was like the last resort yeah. was Santa Fe because the therapist said this will get to the root yeah. of why he keeps relapsing. And so I had work when I came home, but there was a joy that I'd never felt before. Mm-hmm. You know, there was like this breathing in life that mm-hmm. I never had before, mm-hmm. you know, because most of my life was take a breath and duck, mm-hmm. you know, take a breath and duck. Because mm-hmm. uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know if that church out there is going to slam you or, mm-hmm. and then you get out into the real world and you're still ducking, ducking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, it, it, it starts giving you little rewards. And my sponsor said, make those rewards special. You know, mm-hmm. go buy a new tie or, you know, mm-hmm. go, go buy a, a couple of golf balls. You know, it's mm-hmm. anything to reward those places that you get to. Mm-hmm. The, the, one, the one month, the two, uh, the six months, and I'm, I mean, yeah. and, and reward yourself for achieving these things because it's requiring everything of you. Mm-hmm. And you guys know, you can't take this part way. No. Mm-hmm. Something about half measures availing, availing us nothing. I yeah. think I heard somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah somewhere in that uh, literature somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I love that you use that phrase uh, about learning how to live mm. in recovery. I don't know about you. I'd heard a lot of preaching growing oh, up. Lord. People telling me how to live. But I, I had gotten very, very little coaching. Mm-hmm. And one of the great values to me in the recovery communities, we get this wonderful coaching from imperfect people like us mm-hmm. uh, and learn the value of routine, healthy routine. In what ways today in your daily life, kind of the way you structure your daily life, the way you've learned self-care, what are the things you do today that you weren't doing during those crazy years of active addiction? Oh, I, I can sit and be by myself. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's no voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I started liking me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 as I did those daily affirmation and doing the work that they, when I left that place to keep doing, yeah. you know, to, that I could reprogram my mind mm-hmm. to get rid of that, your crap, yeah. to... You deserve all the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it was every day I had to make that decision. Right. I want to go with God because yeah. I, I'm starting to think right again. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I'm starting to process things. And, and I can talk honestly with my wife. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it was like every step was more life. Every mm-hmm. step was more life. And then all of a sudden you get addicted to that, but yeah. it's good for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, I think I'll do this another, you know, 60 days. Well, I think I'll do this another day and mm-hmm. another day. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden my process, my brain process started th- changing, mm-hmm. you know, and I begin to think I was valuable. It's like, how can you love somebody when you can't love yourself? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know how to love, mm-hmm. but 
like you said, sponsors and coaching and and you talk in meetings and they say, well, the old timers. Well, the reason that happened, because you did this back there mm-hmm. and you all of a sudden, well, OK, I can go back there. I can change that. Yeah. And I won't I won't get this that result that I got with that. And I changed that. But but I started turning into this guy I liked, <laughs> you know, like like, man, you know, I, I'm working hard and I'm doing good. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to keep going. I want to be the dad that I want to be. I, I want to yeah. be the husband that I should be. And I want to be the guy that I like. Yeah. And but I, all of these dividends started coming into my life, coming into my life. And and uh, and there were hard times, too. Sure. Man, there were times that you just didn't know you were going to make it through the night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're on the phone with your sponsor and you're hanging on white knuckling because yeah. you've tried everything. And that last vestige of that sickness yeah. won't let go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you just have to. To just trust. Yeah. 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 Just trust. You know, you said you'd take care of me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking all this and I'm just laying it at your feet, God, yeah. because I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And just lay it down and step back and um, and just be. Yeah. And sooner or later, the, 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 the water will start running in your body again. Mm-hmm. And that and that's that that sense of serenity and peace comes back. Uh, but before I would have once I got that feeling. I would numb it because I didn't know it would come back. Yeah. Well, I hadn't felt peace in years. You guys know that. Yeah, I didn't sure. felt peace mm-hmm. at all. But I, 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 uh, uh, I began to change, and I began to like the results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn how to love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my both all of us. You know, with, when we went to liquor, uh, we didn't like ourselves. We didn't yeah. like mm-hmm. what was going on, and that was like this is great. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, but yeah. but th- but it was such a quick quick fix, and you had to do it every four or six hours. Mm-hmm. But when your brain starts changing, yeah, yeah, and you start thinking, I'm I'm worth this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a good guy. Yeah, what my dad said about me was not true. Yeah, mm-hmm. what my said about me wasn't true. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I got people around me telling me I'm doing great. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to hang with these people because they're encouraging me. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just uh, stop going over to these places that much. Yeah. And um, and you start experience joy. Oh Lord. And yes. which we didn't have the capacity Mm-mm. to do. No. And and that part of your brain begins to allow the back part of your brain to trust it. Yes. You know, and all that physiology changes. Russ, have you, um, I don't, I'm not sure how to ask this question, and so I don't want to be, um, I don't want to d- pick a scab. <laughs> no, you but, won't. Um, have you made peace with your, what I would call, I guess, your former faith system? Oh, yes. Yes, big time. Yeah, how did you do that? Because that in, having a practice in the Bible Belt here. Yeah with addicts who have been damaged by the church, how would you, what would you say to somebody who would have that same dilemma? Um, that God is not on your side. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a quick illustration. Yeah. About the church, I feel. Mm-hmm. Is there was a postman that went into this yard. The, the post box was, was by the front door and this big old dog bit him. And uh, the police came out and told the owner of the house, 
He has the right to walk into your yard and put your mail in your box without being attacked. Said, you've got to do something about that dog. So he goes to Home Depot and he gets a big collar and a huge chain and a big stake. And he drives the stake into the ground and and puts the chain on the collar around the dog. And so the next day the postman come in. The dog couldn't bite the postman, Mm -hmm. but in his heart he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And that's religion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Religion puts a muzzle on us. Mm -hmm. You know, freedom comes from the true, loving, kind God that we serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had to fire that, and I had to walk away. Mm-hmm. I just, done. Yeah. I'm, I'm done. Yeah. Um, now, show me who you are. Mm-hmm. I read the red. Mm-hmm. I read the red, and I start getting this image of this guy I didn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this guy that loved me and, and would go to any lengths to help me get well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I stopped going to church for a while, just to be honest. Yeah. And, um, and I found a church that they're not judgmental, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, they, they're not, we are all celebrating each other Mm -hmm. and, and anybody can come, anybody Mm -hmm. can come Mm -hmm. and we all worship God and, um, in, in a way that is supportive and caring. And so once I had to just get rid of all of it, yeah. and then slowly I began to let it back in. Slowly mm-hmm. I began to, but I, I shaped it the way I felt like my higher power should be. Mm-hmm. And then I, as I read the red in the New Testament, I saw that loving God. Mm-hmm. But they had, they had taken it and rewrote it. Mm-hmm. You know, to mm-hmm. control me with guilt, to control me with shame, and and um, you know that self talk that's so destructive to yourself. Mm-hmm. But I began slowly to take steps, and the whole time I'm saying, "Show me who you are." You know, uh, I, I want to know you, mm-hmm. and I want to be able to trust you. Mm-hmm. And so I slowly began to um, create this image of God that I believed he was Mm -hmm. and then surrounded myself with people like mine, that God loves them, Mm -hmm. that he cares about them. And he's not judgmental and hard and standing over you. Right. You know, we can take the muzzle off Mm -hmm. and let the inside change. And that's what the program does. You know, it changes us inside out. Mm -hmm. And those fourth steps of going back and dealing with the stuff that wasn't dealt with in the trauma camp, you Mm -hmm. know, and Mm -hmm. learning how to let those memories come, take it to that higher power that I trust and take it to the group. And I, uh, I'm loved upon. I'm not put down because I had this thought. Right. Uh, and, and so unlike the church, I remember the first time I relapsed and I didn't want to go back cause I'd failed mm-hmm. and I hated that I failed. And all those voices come back. You are a screw up. You're never going to be, you know, you mm-hmm. can't, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't. But my sponsor came and got me and said, you know, come on, we're not going to stop just because you had a relapse. Mm-hmm. And I walked back in that building. And at the end of the meeting, they said, does anybody have a desire to stop drinking? Mm-hmm. And I stood up mm-hmm. and I walked back down there and I was looking at the people that I was just in that meeting with right before the relapse. And mm-hmm. now here I am. And I didn't know if what I was going to get. I didn't know it was going to be judgment. I didn't mm-hmm. know if it was going to be get out of here. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. But they started applauding me. Yeah, yeah. And they started 
I mean, affirming me. Right. You know, I, I, they're not mad at me. Right. I, I can, uh, because I transfer a lot of this church stuff onto AA, which they are not, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And the God of my understanding was nuts about me. Mm-hmm. And when I walk forward to say, I want to try again today. Yeah. They applaud me. Yeah. Come on, let's yeah. do it again today. Yeah. And until I could get a hold of it. Yeah. But I, I, I felt more free in an AA meeting than any place on this planet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while now, you're starting to see churches that get a hold of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you start hearing preachers talking about things that's important about helping us like ourselves yeah. and who we are to stop that destructiveness yeah. that continues to keep us, ca- hold us captive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I don't want to spoil the movie for our listeners. Uh, so I don't want to describe in detail. There is a very, very powerful scene toward the end of the movie that brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so grateful that somebody with a video camera was around <laughs> when, uh, when your higher power arranged for you long after your father's death to, in a very symbolic way, mm-hmm. uh, meet your father and receive from him what you needed to get. Yeah. Uh, what a gift. What beautiful uh, healing. Well, I was totally blindsided by God. And just tell the, the listeners out there, um, I was at my friend's house in Houston. There was about four or five of us artists together with our spouses and we'd all stay at, around at heart Mark's house and around, you know, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and we would be together every day. And it was a fun day of, of, you know, just hanging out and telling stories and laughing and encouraging each other. But Mark's pastor father was passing away yeah, and he had cancer. And he loved this DVD that that Bill Gaither did on me mm-hmm. of just taking songs from the different homecoming videos that I'd yeah. done. Mm-hmm. And just to say about Bill, you know, he was has been so supportive through everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Through everything. He has never, you know, it's like, how can I help? What can we do? Yeah. How can I help? And and um so uh, that DVD, they wanted to surprise their dad. They heard I was in Houston, and if I would just come over and say hello, it would mean so much to them. Yeah. And so I get my acoustic, and I head uh, head over there. Um, and when I walk in that room, I am just shocked because this guy looks so much like my dad. Yeah. Mm. Now, and, and it's like. My body had been healed from that. And, uh, you know, trauma camp helped me really get a uh, handle on it all. But when I saw this guy, I wanted to turn and run mm-hmm. uh, because he looked like my dad. And I didn't know what the reaction should be or would be. You yeah. know, I was just blindsided by how much he looked like my dad. And so I, I said, uh, uh, Pastor Jones, what, what song do you want to hear? And he go, do Heartbreak Ridge. And. And so I'd do that, and I could call out another one, and I would uh, do it for him. And, and then, the, you know, he started getting tired, I, I could tell, and his wife was just kind of, let's wrap it up. And I was getting ready to leave, and he asked me, he said, Russ, would you pray for me? And, uh, and he said, I, I have cancer, and, and unless God heals me, I'm going to die. But he said, I taught my boys how to live. And I'll teach my boys how to die. Mm. <laughs> so, 
that's a father. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a real loving father. Yeah. That it's not about him. It's about his, his, his kids and his grandkids to follow him. And to, I'll show you how to go out of this world. Yeah. And, uh, so I prayed for him. I mumbled, mumbled something. I, I was so intimidated. Here's a guy that worked in this city for 44 years, hospitals and, mm-hmm. and, and night visitations and, you know, emergencies and babies being birthed. And he had done this 44 years. And, uh, and I took my, uh, I stepped back and I, before I realized I'd said it, I, I said, Pastor Jones, would you pray for me? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I wanted to take those words back because it's time to go. And uh, he stood up and he said, I'd love to pray for you. And he puts his big hands on my shoulders like my, my dad had big hands and, and uh, blue eyes and, and, and kind of white hair. And he began to pray for me and, and I began to cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was just having this pastor pray for me. But all of a sudden, as I looked up into his eyes... I saw I saw my dad in him, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, and he was loving on me and, you know, and and, and telling me after he prayed well, while he was praying how much how much God loved me and how how God, my higher power, was proud of me mm-hmm. for the steps that I had taken. And I collapsed to my knees and and I started crying from 50 years ago down deep in my gut. Mm-hmm. All of these tears that I had held, they just began to come out of me and come out of me. And the more I cried, the more he just stroked my hair and, 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 and affirmed me and mm. affirmed mm. me and affirmed me the way a father should a son. And uh, I, 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 the more he did it, the harder I cried. And I, I didn't realize because I'd see the video till re-seen the video till after yeah. uh, the movie that we saw the beginning. I mean the the first cut of it, and uh, and I cried again. Just how much God um, wanted to heal that last part. Yeah, you know that last part that I'd done all the work. You know, I, I went through trauma camp. I went through wedding camp. You know, I went through <laughs> sobriety camp and, you know, everywhere I could turn to grow. Um, but that day, it was like my higher power said, now we're going to deal with all those years in your spirit. Yeah. Yeah. All those years in your spirit that that you were beaten yeah. and hurt. And uh, and that day he had orchestrated this long before I was a grown man. Yeah. You know. He had this meeting set up that the last part of that spiritual thing, because growing up in the church and how damaging it was. Yeah. And to have a dad that was crazy about you and loved your gift. Yeah. And your gift mattered to him and it touched him. And then for him to give to me what I had longed for, you know, since I was a a baby, you know, looking for dad to say, son, you're doing good. Yeah. Son, you're doing good. Uh, I like that part. You know, yeah. I like that verse. Um, and he began to just affirm me. And the more he did it, the harder I cried. And it was just this gushing from so deep in me. And it took a while for all of it to come out. And when I, uh, after he finished praying, I don't know how long I was down there. It had to be over 15 minutes. But when I stepped back, I mean, when I looked and I saw on the, 
the camera, I knew I'd cried, and, and you know, it, I don't know what else to say, but you know, snot run. It was that kind of cry yeah, yeah, yeah. where you can't stop. And my, my shirt was wet, and it had saliva all over it, and <laughs> and I didn't realize I had cried that hard or that much until I saw that that little video or the pictures of me stepping back, and my shirt was so wet. But it's amazing, you know. Tori and I had made so much progress in our marriage. Um, that when I walked back into Mark's house and she saw me across the room and I was different. Yeah. It was like I was rocketed to the fourth dimension. Yeah. Mm. That was my fourth dimension. Yeah. Where I'd done all the work, I'd done this, I'd done that, but then God gets involved and he goes, let's go, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> strap it in because this is going to mean something. Yeah. yeah. And good Lord, I was rocketed into the fourth dimension like I didn't know was possible. Yeah. That that deep hurt child, uh, that deep hurt adult, that it hurt himself over yeah. and over and over. He just took me in his arms, my higher power, yeah, and said, "I'm your daddy now." Yeah, you know, I used his hands. He looks like your dad, and I orchestrated all that. But yeah. let that turn you to me, and let me be your dad. Yeah, I won't let you down. Mm-hmm. You know, I won't fail you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, every time you get close to me, I'll be affirming you and telling you how much I love you. Yeah. And uh, so as I then begin to get stronger and stronger, uh, and like I said, all of these camps that I went to to get well, each one of them played a part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I could have I stopped at any moment. But my wife is, I remember in the early on, she told me, she said, I'll fight for you until you know how to fight for yourself or until you learn how to fight for yourself. And, and um, she got, went through anger at me, you know, yeah. just mm-hmm. stupid things mm-hmm. that I would do, trying to, trying to learn how to live, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to learn how to love and letting her feel affirmed from me. Mm-hmm. It was a, a hard process because you don't know how. I mean, we didn't have parents, maybe you did, but I didn't have parents that showed me how, what a true loving couple. And that is one more part of the story I want to throw in there real quick. Was when I was 17 and I couldn't stay with my parents anymore. My senior high teacher Hmm. um, saw what was going on, saw what was going on in my body. And, and she had come to hear the band play. She and her husband, Bud. And uh, she was a foster child herself. And she had taken other people in. But she said, Russ, why don't you come and live with us? You know, and just get out of that craziness and just come and live with us. And so for some years or early on, a few years, I got to see a healthy family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I I got to see uh, a family that that Bud loved June, loved Mm -hmm. her. And June loved Bud. And they love their kids. Yeah. And I was going, oh, this is normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish I could have stayed there for 40 years to yeah. learn how to be. But, but my higher power taught me and bring people into me to teach me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to live in this open, uh, open mind to whatever, because everywhere you turn, there could be a lesson learned. You know, mm-hmm. everywhere you turn, there might be a voice speaking to you. Yeah. Uh, something you read in the big book and you turn around and there's your higher power saying, mm-hmm. remember that, remember yeah. that. Yeah. And then you begin to take your first step and you're starting to feel confident. 
you know. Mm-hmm. You didn't trust yourself to take that first step, but you did, mm-hmm. and you survived, you know, and you took another step, and all of a sudden you've got a week sober. Yeah. You yeah. know, and you take another step, and then you start turning into a man that you like because you're doing the right things. Mm-hmm. You're, you're doing the right thing, and, mm-hmm. and that's important to feel. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to be a man in my own head before I can be a parent to my child. Yeah. I can't be live my whole life as this broke, hurt child. Right. And uh, so I, I, I started walking with confidence. And it took months and months and months. But she began to trust me little mm-hmm. by little. Yeah. But for some reason, I couldn't give up on her. I mean, she was my last... I had gone down so low that she was my last grip on sanity. Mm-hmm. And if I lose that, I lose everything. Yeah. And I'll be under a bridge because here's a person that's fighting for me, mm-hmm. you know, and loving me. I got to learn how to fight for myself. Okay, I will. I will. And more marriage counseling. But I didn't let go. And for some reason, she didn't leave me. Yeah. Uh, but I started turning into a person that she liked. Yeah. You know, and I was affirming to her like my Heavenly Father was affirming to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, the rest of life is a learning process, you know, yeah. and yeah. doing another fifth step and continue to keep the bucket clean. That resentment doesn't, doesn't come back. Right. Yeah. Because resentment, you both know, yeah. it's a killer. It's yeah. just a killer. Feels the entitlement. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, I could talk to you for another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't thank you enough for bringing your whole self to the conversation. Um, I've just basked in the genuineness of this conversation. And mm-hmm. I know that our listeners for years to come, because uh, what what uh, what goes up into the worldwide interweb stays there forever. Uh, this is gonna the ripples are gonna go a long way. Thank well, you so very much. Well, I I, I I had to come in person. I don't. I'm the kind of per, I don't do well in phone interviews. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But I knew when I got here, we're all of the like mind. We're all living the same kind of life. We're yeah. all going to be supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. And I want to do this face to face because yeah. I feel confident when I'm around my brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I do. Yeah. And thank you for that. Cause it's just more powerful yeah. Yeah, to yeah. get together yeah. the synergy of the conversation. All right. Well, hang on for, we will be back in just a moment. are back on the pirate monk podcast well that sounded like a great conversation i didn't get to be a part of a little jealous <laughs> yeah yeah you would have loved it but i'm glad you got to share and isn't it just amazing how god orchestrates our healing and he even finds ways ways from time to time when it's necessary to bring a surrogate into our lives to say the things that we need to hear uh, to touch us in those broken places that need healing to bring some resolution. Yeah. And I hope as Christians, we can get over our fear of pop psychology. Yeah. Realizing 
and realize that there are things in our past that that have to come up and find healing through Jesus yeah for us to extricate ourselves from the holes we are in yeah 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 I, that's so important so this will be our last podcast before I see you in person and hoping to do some some podcasts there face to face because that's just so much more fun and looking forward to the podcast with the pirate monks at the retreat on that Sunday morning. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. Well, until then, I guess it's time to sign off. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. We are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. There was no arg there at the end. (laughs) 